0: Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Raji said, if you'd like to turn to Exodus 3, that'd be really good. We're continuing in our, continuing on our identity series, and I wanted to start with this statement, and it's a little bit of a confusing statement, perhaps. Perhaps it's a statement that doesn't quite make sense. Hopefully, it'll make a lot of sense by the end, or maybe it's already making some nascent sense right now, but it basically is, you are because I am. You are because I am. As you know, we've been going through our identity series. You saw the question up there, who am I? It's a pretty important question. There's many different voices and sermons being preached to you every day, whether it be on your Facebook, Twitter, um, Netflix, over and over again. Many voices telling you who you are or who you should be. So as we come to this. Sermon today. I really want us to focus in on this idea of "You are because I am." Now we have been going through this identity session, uh, identity series, and this is number five. A little bit of a revision. Does anyone remember what the first sermon was entitled? So they all—I'll give you a clue. They all begin with "You are." You are the Amargo Day. Well done. Well, wow, that's good. That's good. Can anyone remember the next one? Oh, I can't. I had to look down. <laughs> you are not your own. Remember that one? And you can actually, by the way, go back on the web and uh, have a listen to all these and encourage you to do so and read around the sermons as well. The third one was, you are bought with a price. And of course, fourth one was, "Raji, you are an alien. Not the kind of aliens you see on uh, kind of extraterrestrial movies, but a stranger, a foreigner. This is not your home. And so today we're looking at, you are because I am, so what does that mean? Well, I wanna start with this question. What are the greatest human needs? What do you think are the greatest human needs? Maybe just throw something out there. So did someone say water? Yep. Air, oxygen, food. You guys are doing really well. Sleep, actually you've already, yep. Sleep, yep. Some, some people are really uh, cherishing their sleep more than others at the moment, particularly with young, young kids and young babies. Um, you guys did pretty well. Anthony Robbins actually comes up first when you do a website. Anthony Robbins is the motivational speaker and it's all a little bit touchy-feely for me, but this is what he says are the greatest human needs. Certainty, variety, significance, love slash connection, growth and contribution. Like I said, a bit touchy-feely really. Um, What I really wanted was the fundamental needs and they actually come up as number four or something, which is kind of interesting because those other things are now above Oxygen, water, food, shelter, and sleep. But they're the five there. Oxygen, water, food, shelter, sleep. Um, I'd probably add another one, but uh, actually I will add it now. Love, I reckon. Hey, because the reason I put this is because you guys would have heard of a concept called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Has anyone ever heard of that? It comes around from the 50s and 60s and it was like a pyramid. And essentially at the bottom of the pyramid as your greatest needs were all the basic uh, needs of, of what we just talked about, which were hunger and thirst and you know, food, water, shelter, et etc. et cetera. Then building up to the top where you get towards sort of social type needs. So companionship and love, the need for belonging, the things that Anthony Robbins was talking about, which actually I don't disagree with. But what's really interesting about love is, is love oftentimes will cause you to deny those needs. We see that in Christian history, don't we? We see martyrs who will deny the very need for life. They'll actually deny that need in order to die for their love of Christ and their love of each other. Pretty amazing stuff. So when I was uh, in the army, we would do these courses uh, and one of them was called the combat survival course. And in the combat survival course, it's basically manage starvation. Um, So you you get put into this scenario. It could be on a desert island. Literally, they'll put you on an island called Rattlesnake Island out near Townsville, or they'll put you up in the jungle and you don't have any food. It's as if your aircraft has just crashed. And in one of the scenarios, you have an enemy that's chasing you. So for two days or three days, you do escape and evasion, try not to get caught while eating these little survival bickies. And you basically live off the land. Kind of sounds like fun. But for a guy like me that loves their food, it wasn't much fun at all. Because I was hungry all the time. And I was thirsty a lot of the time. And weird things starts to happen to your body when you're really hungry and you're really thirsty. You start to have kind of weird hallucinations and things like that. And so all of a sudden, you're actually being preached this massive sermon about need. And I'll tell you what, that pizza at Pizza Hut, after all that's over, and we all get together and have some pizza. Oh, uh, that was nice. Really nice. Really satisfying. So good. Hey. Um, this week, I kind of experienced another type of need as well, maybe up there to do with oxygen and probably just life in general, where you know I shared the prayer request about the vertigo, where um, I was just sitting at my desk and the whole world went, boom, sideways. and I was like literally grabbing for things and uh, trying to sit up straight and then snap, it just snapped back to normal. Really weird, not good for a pilot, so I had to kind of ground myself and now I'm going to go through some medical tests and stuff. But that kind of preached to me this week about just the, the basic gift of consciousness and the basic gift of like stability and the basic gift of awareness, which all comes with life. We just kind of take it for granted, and yet it's such a gift and it's such a need So they're the kind of needs, and I probably don't need to go on about it too much, except to say that for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, we're needy. We need things. So if you look around at each other right now, if this room was sucked dry of oxygen, you're all dead in three minutes. Some might have bigger lung capacity, but you are dead. And if we were trapped in here for more than three days without water, you are dead. If you were trapped in here for more than three weeks without food, despite all these nice pictures up here of abundance, um, especially that one over there, uh, you, would, you would die. We're just constantly in need. We, and and like, we tend to take it for granted in this country, but there are many other countries where those basic necessities are not there. And that's why we should be very generous with what we've been given. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to start off with all that and then just ask this question, which is what happens if we don't get what we need? And I kind of already said, yeah, we die, but what else happens? What else happens to us when we realize that we're not going to get what we need or we realize that someone else has more than what we've got? Cranky pets? <laughs> hangry? Yeah, lots of different things happen. Now I just want us to kind of hold this question in our mind, just let it kind of hover there. Um, as we go through this sermon and don't try, I'll, I'll bring us back to this, but just have a think about well, what happens when I'm striving for something, when I'm yearning for something, when I'm desiring something and I actually really do need it and I don't get it. And again, the sermon title, you are because I am. What has that got to do with any of human needs? Isn't this just sort of a spiritual thing, a kind of bit of a weird thing? You know, why would God call himself? I am. That doesn't sound real kind of impressive, does it? What has that got to do with human need? What has that got to do with the glory and the majesty and the spectacular power of God Almighty? I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to uh, Exodus 3. And Raji already took us through some of this. So I'll just read through it fairly quickly. But to set the context, Moses, about 1500 BC, he's been out of Pharaoh's palace now. He was an adopted prince of Egypt, he enjoyed all the luxuries of the palace. And he's been out of the palace for probably 40 years or so. He's an old guy now. He's about 80. Imagine that, just like tending sheep in the wilderness for decades. For decades. And then this happens in Exodus 3. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, who was a priest of Midian. And Moses led the flock to the far side of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Now you have to understand the angel of the Lord often has such power and authority that he's actually seen almost as God himself. It's almost as if God's presence is there in the angel of the Lord. The fascinating study to look at the angel of the Lord all the way through Scripture. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, oh, go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. You could say there that God was concerned about the needs of his people. They are in incredible need as slaves. <clears throat> so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Now notice what he says here. Bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Hamorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent to you. And they ask me, what is his name? So you have to understand here in the Hebrew, God is just El or Elohim, which the, the Babylonians, the, the you know, Canaanites and so forth that we just heard about there, they all called God El as well. It's just like a generic term, just like today, you know, a Muslim, a Hindu might call God, God. But now Moses is saying, what's your name? Because if I go to them and say God, they're going to go, which God? The God of your fathers, in verse 13, has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, here it comes. I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. I don't know about you, but I kind of get the point there that God's name, this I am, is really important to him. He's saying he should be known by it from generation to generation. Are you a generation? So you you should know God by this name. You should know what this name means. You should be really intimate with this name. You should call him this. Do you? It's interesting, isn't it? We're going to talk more about his name. I just want to pray. Father, glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning and is now and will be forever. Glory, hallelujah, to the name above every name. In Jesus' name, amen. Something you should know literarily. So something about the literature. As you know, I'm kind of big on literature. That's my academic area of expertise at the moment, apparently. Something you should know literarily about the, uh, the text that we're looking at, and I've just put it up on the board there. But in these key verses, Exodus 3, 14 to 15, I've highlighted the way God refers to himself. There's the basic one, God. Then there's I am who I am, and I'll just bring them out for you. Then there is I am has sent me to you. There's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and simply Lord. But notice what the Lord is. Is What do you notice about Lord? Is that how you would normally write Lord? You'd get in trouble with your English teacher if you did. Why? It's all capitals. Yeah. So when he says God, like I said in the Hebrew, that is Elohim, which is just a generic word for God. When he says I am who I am, that is what has become known to the Hebrew people and the Jewish people in the, even today, as the unspeakable tetragamaton. So tetra is four, gamaton like grammar, the unspeakable four-letter word for God, which is YHWH in English. And it's actually a name. Now, what has happened in, over English translations is no one has actually, there's a bit of mystery about it. Because the YHWH doesn't have any vowels, it only has consonants. And so there's a bit of mystery about how it's actually even pronounced in the first place. And so what what scholars did over time, Hebrew scholars, they actually filled in the vowels. And we ended up with the name that we now refer to as Adonai. Or in some old versions of the Bible, Jehovah. But Jehovah actually is just a guess. Yahweh is much closer. And most scholars now agree that Yahweh is how it probably would be said in English. Although if it was said in Hebrew, it would probably be with more a guttural kind of Hebrew sound, which I can't really do. But in any case, this name was so special, so sacred that the scribes would, ref- would, would, would refer to it as YHWH in Hebrew. And they refused to actually write it or even say it. That's why oftentimes I would refer to God as Adonai. So like I said, there's something really special about this name. Now, you can also be rendered, you will be what you will be. So it's designed to be uh, spoken out in a, an identifying kind of way. I am who I am. And then the people would say, you will be what you will be. And so there's this kind of connotation of certainty. of God, God hasn't said, I am like this or I'm like that. He hasn't used any name um, that was known to anyone previous to that. He has said, I simply, I am who I am. And the name is Yahweh. And in Hebrew, there's the bottom of it there. Uh, sorry, at the bottom, that's what it looked like. And that was holy and, and sacred, even writing it down. The scribes would purify themselves and you know, go through all sorts of ceremonies to make sure that they were pure, you know, ceremonially clean before they wrote that down. And so for 6, 000, over 6,000 times in the Bible, you will see Yahweh. For instance, in the next little bit, I won't read it all, but it says, say to the Israelites, Yahweh. God has sent me to you. Whenever you see the capitalized in most Bibles, either all capitalized or the, a big L and then O-R-D, capitalized, that is God's proper name. Like Peter's a proper name. Like We don't refer to Peter, the disciple, as the rock, even though that's what his name means. We refer to him as Peter. And so God had this name Yahweh. And for 6,000 times... From about 1500 BC, his name did not change. He was referred to as Yahweh over and over again. So after Moses, Joshua came along. He referred to God as Yahweh. Then the time of the judges, Gideon, Samson, they all referred to God as Yahweh. David, the great psalmist, all through the Psalms, Yahweh. Solomon, Yahweh. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Yahweh. Nehemiah, Yahweh. Over and over again, the name, the unspeakable tetragamaton, spoken, special, sacred, referring to this God who then takes his people, he frees them, read the story yourself maybe this week, frees them, brings them into the desert, and he actually says there, I brought you into the desert to provide you with manna so that you will learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, the mouth of Yahweh. Already he was teaching them that Yahweh meant their needs were going to be fulfilled. But my main point here is that you read the Bible over and over again. Do your own test if you want. Test what I'm saying. That name does not change. Now they might add to it, like they might go Yahweh um, of uh, hosts. So of the angel armies or things like that. But Yahweh never changes until, does anyone know, when someone dares, someone dares to change this name or to add to it. Anyone know? Dramatic drum roll. Then Jesus declared, Yahweh, I am the bread of life. He does something very sophisticated. It's a word plaque. He goes, Yahweh, the bread of life. He's essentially saying, Yahweh I am Yahweh and Yahweh is the bread of life and I'll prove it to you in a minute and Luke already alluded to it when he was speaking to his Jehovah's witness friend as soon as he says that he is saying I am Yahweh this 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 name that didn't change he's saying I am me." that's me and more than that I am the bread of life whoever comes to me will never go hungry And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. If you go to John and chapter six and read through John chapter six, you'll see it's all about Jesus and the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And then he actually turns that into a sermon and says, you know what, that bread you just ate, I am the real bread that'll keep you alive. And in fact, all of John, if you go to the end of John, John 20, 31, he says, I am telling, this is John, I'm telling you these things about Jesus so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I am Yahweh, I am the bread of life. Not, not just merely I am that I am, but I am the bread of life, something new. And you know there's seven statements you can go back to our John series and have a bit of a listen. And you'll see these seven I am statements. Remember the next one, John eight twelve. I am Yahweh, the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, he's referring there to a psalm, which is, you are the fountain of life. In you, there is life. Lost my connection momentarily. Your light, in your light, we see light. So not I am that I am, but, but something new. I am the light of the world, Yahweh, the light of the world. Imagine the Jews who have 1500 years of tradition under their belts of this sacred name, this unspeakable tetragrammaton, and now Jesus comes along and goes, I am Yahweh, and Yahweh is the light of the world. And you know, they, it didn't take them long to work this out, so in John 8, 58 to 59, um, they're all having a go at Jesus, they're saying, "Oh, we don't even know who your father is. You're an illegitimate child. We've got Abraham as our father, remember how uh, Moses... Heard God's name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. What does Jesus say? Yahweh. Before Abraham, I am Yahweh. That's essentially what he's saying. It's a bit clumsy in English, but that's what he's saying. Before Abraham, Yah. Before Abraham, I am Yahweh. At this, they pick up stones to stone him. They've had enough. We move on to the next statement. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. I love it. I think it was Rudgy who took us through a sermon about this and he showed what a shepherd would do. So do you, I don't know if you remember the picture. I was going to put it up, but I uh, forgot about it. Basically, they would find like an area, perhaps a, a cavern or perhaps a narrow ravine and they would lie themselves down at the front or the sheep would go in and they would lie themselves at the front. They would literally become the gate to protect from wolves and predators and so forth. Jesus says that of you. He says, That's what I'm doing. I am the gate. And then he talks about how when the gate opens, they will go out and they will have life to the full. And he says, I am the only way. Thieves come to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life, that they may have it to the full. I am Yahweh. I am life to the full. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am Yahweh. I am the good shepherd. And then he says in that marvelous story, read it yourself with Lazarus. He says to Martha, love Martha in this story. She's the one that runs out. Mary's still back bawling and crying. Martha knows where to go. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. What was that to Mary? I'll have to check that. Anyway, Martha's pretty cool in that story. Jesus is saying again, I am Yahweh, I am resurrection and life. And then in the meal, the last supper, where he just so magnificently serves his disciples, they should have been serving him. He's on his knees, washing their feet, serving them, making sure they're okay, giving them a sermon of comfort, a sermon to tell them, hey, this is going to be some pretty tough times coming, but I'm going to be with you through the spirit. Caring for them as he knows himself, he must go to the cross. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my house, there are many rooms or many mansions. I'm going to prepare that for you. It's shelter. And then I think it's Thomas who says, Oh, we don't know the way. And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm Yahweh. And then he talks about, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am Yahweh. I am the vine. that that name, that magnificent name for 1,500 years, no one dared, not David, not Solomon, not Isaiah, not Ezekiel, no one dared to add to it. And then Jesus comes along. (coughs) The only way Jesus could add to that special name was if he was God himself. And he was just simply revealing something more. And if you think about it, I am that I am, it almost suggests that there's going to be something to come. Because if God had just said, I am, which is yeah, he could have actually said that. It would have just been full stop, I am. But when you say, just follow me if again, I am that I am, it's got a, lot, like a flow to it. Like it actually looks like it's going somewhere. Like It's still a closed kind of loop. It's still oneness and unity and full stop, this is who I am. But it's got like a flow to it. And it's almost like it's open-ended in its structure to say, there's something else coming. And indeed there is. No one else dared to go, I am the light of the world or I am the bread of life. Only Jesus. So let's do a little test. Okay, let's test our basic needs. So welcome back to your needs. Oxygen, water, food, shelter, sleep, all the things that we desperately need. Life. Uh, And let's see. Okay, bread of life. Well, there we go. We've got food and actually in that same Verse, he says, I am the bread of life. And then he talks about anyone who comes to him will never be thirsty as well. So there's water. The light of the world. We know that's life. So oxygen. The gate, the good shepherd, shelter. Companionship, rest and sleep. The resurrection, life, of course. The way, the truthful, obvious life. The vine, life connected Beyond ourselves, life is not in and of of ourselves self-generating. It is dependent upon God, upon Jesus. So now this guy, this carpenter in Judea, 1,500 years after Yahweh told Moses his name, this guy says his name is all these things, all these life things. And not only that, he says this is his name. This He says, that's my name. Before Abraham, I am. Before Abraham, Yahweh. Amazing. You know, we are needy people, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. I said, what does I am have to do with that? In his name, in his character, all your needs are fulfilled. In his name, in his character, in his personhood, in his presence, all those yearnings that you've felt over the many years that you'll feel again until the day you die are a sermon to you. The next time you get hungry, go, you know what I'm really hungry for? Yahweh. You know what I'm really thirsty for? I may not feel this, but I am thirsty for Jesus Christ, the son of God, the living God, the living bread, the light of life, the gate, the shepherd, the vine. That is um, what I call my little doctrine of, and you've heard me say it before, divinitus absentia. I like using made up Latin words. The divine absence. Within us all, there is a yearning for stuff, for food, for shelter, etc. And what I want to say to you is that is a vector. You know, a vector is different to a scalar in what way? So a scalar only has quantity in mathematics, right? But a vector has quantity and direction. What the world want to say to you is these needs are just Ecclesiastes style, futile, meaningless. They don't mean anything. Just do what you can in the present to fulfill and sate those needs. Get as much money. Get as much stuff. Make yourself as comfortable and secure as you can. Get every type of insurance that you can possibly think of over and over again to fill those needs because those needs are just scalars. They are just quantity. They don't tell you anything except that you're a needy person. What Jesus Christ says here is all those needs are vectors. They point to him. Every time you sate that thirst or that hunger you will be what? Hungry again and thirsty again until the day you die. And actually, as you get older, if, if you're blessed in that way to even get old, really old, taste goes, sense of smell goes. You actually, you don't enjoy those things anymore anyway. And more and more, the yearning, I believe, should come for life. Life in Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one. So we're back to this question, what happens when we don't get what we need? And you guys are already all over it we see what happens. There's like fear that we're going to lose. We're going to lose our comfort. We're going to lose our shelter. We're going to lose our food, our drink. We're going to lose our companionship. There's fear. So when fear comes, we then begin to go into defense mode. We might fight. We might get jealous. We might lust. It's really interesting to me that through scripture, the idols that we're seeing in, say, the time of... um, the judges or David or Solomon or even the Canaanite idols, they're all to do with fertility, food, weather, things that would affect their basic needs. Even the gods of Egypt were like that. Isn't that interesting? And if you look, and if you're just a snapshot, say one night's worth of advertisements on TV or on Facebook or whatever, they would all be about basic human needs because advertisers know that. And so over and over again, you're being told, this is what you really need. And when we don't get what we really need, deep down, there's lust, jealousy, fear, selfishness, hardness. And what can happen is our eternal needs can apparently be met by temporary things. We think that we're now satisfied, but that thing just rots like that little orange on the tree I saw out the back of our house in the Navy's yard. Um, Just in case you put too much to the metaphor. Uh, what happens when we don't get what we need? What happens when we think we've got what we need? What happens when we don't get what we really need? An atheist will agree with me on, you're going to die. That is the reality of your life. You will die. All of us will die. It's interesting because the Gold Coast at the moment was schoolies and I think it's coming to an end, but I remember the paramedics talking to me when I was down there and at uh, Careflight. And they were saying how some of the drugs, they, they hate it because so many people are taking drugs and it's just really full on time for them. So you can imagine as people just doing crazy, wacky things. Um, so what a lot of these drugs will do is they actually mask human need. So a lot of people will die from dehydration because they just don't drink water. So they're on these drugs, don't drink water and end up incredibly dehydrated, heat stroke and so forth. and cark it. And I kind of think that's almost like a, a bit of a lesson for us. It's like when we think that food, water, shelter, all those kinds of things and all the things that society are saying that we need, it's almost like it's masking the real need, the real spiritual need that these things, these vectors are supposed to point to. That is that we are eternal beings. We were designed to live forever. And now that has been taken away from us because of the fall. And we are like this kind of semi-life-filled tulip or is that a tulip or is that a daisy bub? No. it's a daffodil i oh, mean not even close you know that the flower again i've used this illustration so many times because i believe it is coming from jesus illustration of the vine when a branch is cut off you know like a flower's cut off it has the appearance of life for a while but then it dies so what what can be done with our needs with the thirst the yearnings that we feel I love this verse. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. Just let them soak into your your souls. Like, Just listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that word belief is such a deep word. Like it's a deep well. You can can just plumb the depths of it. Obviously it means faith. It's the verb form of faith to, to actively believe. But it also means allegiance. To pledge allegiance to the Son, to become one with the Son, is eternal life. And it also means just sheer old dependence. Just like you depend on your food, you depend on your oxygen. Imagine what would happen without the oxygen. To believe is to depend on Jesus to be your oxygen, to be your food, to be your water, to be your life. Now, did you notice the one I missed before? In terms of did he tick? Those boxes because, like I said, as I said before, um, the Canaanite gods, the gods of our more modern religions, they all offer some sort of promise of basic needs being met, whether it's life after death, even food, water, shelter, etc. But do they give you the promise of love? And if they were to give you the promise of love, then show me, show me the proof. I want to see it. Maybe they'd say it's in creation. Well, when we look around creation, look at the incredible suffering that's going on. The incredible deprivation. Deprivation of basic needs all around the world. How would you know if your God loves you? How would you know? You are because God so loved the world. And we know it because God, Yahweh, we already saw how he was insistent that he was God, that Jesus was God. Jesus then went to the cross. And Jesus then deprived himself of every single human need. Do you remember one of the things he said on the cross? I thirst. And what did we give him? We gave him vinegar. He would have probably in his humanhood really just wanted to sate his throat. Uh, you know, food. Of course he was hungry. It'd probably been, you know, a day or so since he'd eaten or at least 12 hours or whatever. He'd be smashed around. There was no shelter for him. There was no rest. That, that should shake us to our core, that Yahweh. Yahweh, Jesus, God, will go to the cross. <laughs> it's just like mind-blowing. You are, Because I am you are because God so loved the world and you are because God is I am and you are because I am so love the world Yahweh love the world. You are because I am Yahweh, the bread of life. You are because Yahweh, the light of the world. You are because Yahweh, the gate. You are because Yahweh, the good shepherd. You are because Yahweh, the resurrection and the life. You are because Yahweh, the way, the truth and the life. You are because Yahweh, the vine. You are not just your needs. Your needs point to Yahweh. They point to Jesus. And we're about to move into communion. And what better way to finish this sermon than to eat a meal together? And I want you to imagine that it's a full meal. It's not just a bit of dehydrated kind of juice and, or, you know, minuscule juice or a little bit of bread. It's a, a full on meal because that's what awaits us in the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. But I want to ask this question, which I've asked in every sermon this year. The parable of the house on the rock and the house on the sand. Remember what Jesus, uh, the parable Jesus told. And the question I always ask, and I've asked it all this year. I just felt like the Lord put that on my heart. Why did the house on the sand fall flat? What is the difference between the house on the sand and the house on the rock? In Jesus' own words. The foundation, yes. On the rocks, yes. And what does Jesus say is the difference between the house on the sand and the house on the rock? Obedience. He says very clearly that the difference between the man who built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on the rock is that one heard Jesus' words. They both heard Jesus' words, actually, and one did them. And so how do you do a sermon like this? (laughs) Well, if you think about it, The next time you feel hungry or thirsty, or the next time, and I believe the Spirit will show you this, you feel that deadness in your heart towards the things of God, then it's time to say, Jesus, Yahweh, show me my true need. I need to be serious with you. I need to stop being satisfied with lesser things. And you need to acknowledge that this same Jesus, Yahweh, demands something of us. He demands all of our heart. Now, I believe this is a process. I believe that over time, he brings us more and more into that state. But he demands complete allegiance. Allegiance to the point where he says something strange. He says, take up your cross every day and follow me. He says, if you don't take up your cross every day and follow me, you can't be my disciples. Do you know what that actually means? The cross is a sign of deprivation. The cross is a sign of self-denial. The cross is, right now I feel that I need this temporary thing, A, over here, I can feel a call. I can feel a call from Jesus through his Holy Spirit. But I need this. I deserve this. I legitimately need this. And so I'll put that. No, 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 no. This, this need here, it hurts. I don't want to go to whatever thing the church has called me to do or some crazy, wacky thing that maybe God's causing me to do as an individual. But I will. I'll, I'll give up that. I'll give up that thing. I'll give up that need. Just like Jesus gave up so much for me on the cross. That's what he's calling us to do. That's what it means. Please don't be the person who has built their house on the sand. and goes, yeah, I'll get that. And I'll just wait for that to happen and blah. That's not, no, no. Jesus is saying, get serious now. Get real now. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. You know, all this year, I just feel like there's been a bit of a, a weight or something or, or a cloudiness or a congestion or something in us all. And I'm asking you to look at that and go, Jesus, what is it? And I'm asking you to go, Lord Jesus, man, I'm so needy. I'm so, I'm so weak and, and oh, just so empty without you, but Lord, you're calling me to something greater. You're calling me. Remember what we said? Remember what we said? Do you want to trust more deeply? Do you want to hope more deeply? Do you want to love more deeply? Do you, do you really? Then pray. Pray and do not stop praying until Jesus creates within us a clean heart, creates within us a new heart, it is right to finish with a meal and I want to finish with a song as well. And you know, so This might not be your cup of tea, a David Crowder song. Okay? But I just want you to listen to it. And um, the words are going to be up on the, on the slide there or up on the screen. And what we're going to do is as the song plays out, I just want you to consider Yahweh. Consider who he is. Consider who you're coming to in communion. Because after that, in your own time, it'll go quiet. And in the quietness, I just want you to move up. Take the cup. We'll keep it and we'll share it together. Take the bread. And as you go back and in that very real well, as you hold and smell and taste your need, and you hold and taste and smell that vectored need, and you are pointed towards Jesus again, we're going to drink, obviously going to eat, and then we're going to drink together. And then I'm going to play another song. And it's actually crowded as uh, I am. And so clever because, again, it's that word play. See if you can see it. One line goes, I am holding on to you. It could be I, as in Adrian, are holding on to you. Or it could be God, I am, Yahweh, holding on to you. I love the power of poetry. But I really want us just to <laughs> listen for his voice in this time. So let me pray, and then we'll... Watch the video. We'll have communion together <laughs> and then we'll watch the second video. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you that you didn't leave us as we are. You brought, your, you brought proof of love and proof of life on a cross that killed you. Thank you, Father. Thank you that the proof of life came three days later when your son, the living Lord Jesus, stepped out of that tomb. Out of that ultimate emblem of deprivation where there was no life, there was just deep, dank darkness. And out you came and you live forevermore. And we will live as well. But Lord, let us be people that are worthy of this name, Yahweh. How magnificent that you would give us that name, Christ one. Oh Lord, as we come to you, examine our hearts search our hearts and know us, test our anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.